No smoke yet from the Vatican, but a bombshell of an announcement today, Monday, February 11th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. Pope Benedict announces his resignation. Amazingly, no one leaked the story. In Rome, there's an expression, subsegreto, which means under the seal of secrecy, which usually is translated as don't give it away, sell it. Uh, there are very few secrets in Rome. This was one of them. We'll have the latest on the first papal resignation in almost 600 years, and later, waiting for U.S. visas and wondering why. There is nothing that you can do. But you would like to know a little bit more, you know, how come I'm not, things are not moving properly? Plus, Europe's horse meat scandal gets messier. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It was not announced on his Twitter feed. Nope. Pope Benedict XVI announced his decision to resign during a meeting of cardinals today at the Vatican. Speaking in Latin, the 85-year-old said that carrying out the papal duties requires both strength of mind and body and that he is stepping down at the end of February because of his frail health. Reporter Megan Williams is in Rome. Uh, So now the news has sunk in, Megan. What's been the reaction there in Rome in the Vatican? Well, it's been complete and utter shock. Not so much because uh, the Pope resigning was considered outside the realm of possibility, because it wasn't. I mean, he had told very clearly in 2012 a German journalist that if he felt he was no longer up to the task for health reasons, he would consider resigning. The timing of it has left a very brief windows in which to get organized for the closed secret re-election of the next Pope. So there's a lot to do in a very brief window of time. And of course, all of the backroom politicking is going to start with a vengeance soon. How is the the dynamic going to change with the Pope still alive and the conclave, uh, you know, trying to figure out who the next person is going to be? It was interesting being at the Vatican this morning because all of the uh, Vatican experts were down there and they were all, you know, trying to figure out what it's going to look like in the next month. It's not unprecedented because it has happened centuries ago, but it hasn't happened in a very long time. Right. The conclave is always preceded by a funeral and the person is gone. Now, Pope Benedict is going to go to uh, Castel Gandolfo, which is a castle just outside of Rome. And then after that, he says he will retire into what was a, a cloistered convent inside Vatican City, which is not very far from St. Peter's Square and, of course, not very far from the office that he now occupies. So he's not going to be far from the center of power. And how that will play out, who knows? I'm sure he's going to continue writing. He's a great intellectual. So I can't imagine that he will remain completely silent. Now, for the Vatican right now, I guess there's never a good time, uh, I suppose, for an announcement like this. But what is the state of things at the Vatican? I think, you know, again, talking with Vatican experts and having read his, his interview, what he said during that interview is that he would not 
step down in a time of danger for the church. And danger can be interpreted in, in many different ways, but certainly the Vati leak scandal was not a good time for the church. All of the terrible anguish over the sex abuse cases with, with pedophile priests, that would not have been a good time for him to resign. He likely chose a time when there wasn't too much controversy. And Megan, what about this announcement being kind of a game-changer moment for the Catholic Church? Any talk that it should now be a younger pope? That's what they said after Pope John Paul II. I was here for that conclave. Everybody expected, oh, yes, let's get an African pope or let's get uh, a South American pope. Let's get a younger man. You know, I think the papal contenders, one comes from Africa, one is uh, Central American, one is Canadian, one is Italian. None of them are particularly young. And frankly, cardinals aren't young. So I doubt that age will influence the decision that much. It hasn't in the past. Megan, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Reporter Megan Williams there in Rome. As Megan mentioned, this is the first time a pope resigns in almost 600 years. We asked James Bretsky to help us put today's news in a historical context. Father Bretsky is a professor of moral theology at Boston College. He says he wasn't shocked by Pope Benedict's announcement. It struck me as surprising but not shocking, and surprising because Pope Benedict is very careful. I think this is his last act to make a change, which he believes should happen for the church, which is to keep a vibrant pope in office. So the fact that he could do this, his predecessor never would have done it, I think is his last official important contribution. Did the unprecedented nature of a pope stepping down before death automatically lead you to some sort of speculation? Well, it leads me to this personally, the speculation, which we will see. I think he must be very seriously ill, and this would be borne out shortly if he is, in fact, terminally ill. Why does a pope typically serve till their death? Because he's considered to be the leader of the whole church, and he should not be susceptible to external forces. And he has to live with his mistakes, He has to live with his successes, but he also has to live with his mistakes. Our superior general in the Jesuits is also elected uh, for life, and he also can resign. So tell us uh, about the last pope to quit. Um, That would be Gregory XII. He stepped down in 1415. Right. At that time, uh, there was what they called the Great Schism, uh, the Great Western Schism. There were rival popes. The papacy had gone back and forth between Avignon in southern France and Rome. And they had rival camps, and there was a lot of uh, political infighting going on. And basically, to make a very long story uh, much shorter, he resigned to kind of clear the playing field to end this uh, these rival claimants and to let a, a pope be elected who could unify the church. So were there critics of uh, Pope uh, Gregory XII stepping down, or was it seen as, okay, here is an instance of where a pope leaving their mandate before the end is, is okay? Well, I wasn't around then, so I'm not sure. But I presume that there were some critics. But I think basically this was a way of restoring unity and unifying the church. And I think it was a good move. He was considered to be a noble person in stepping down. The pope that had stepped down much earlier was cast by Dante into Inferno for stepping down. But Pope Gregory, I think they considered that to be a noble move. Given uh, Pope Benedict's short term, is is there a clear sense of direction from the Vatican right now, especially in the face of multiple scandals that the church has faced? Well, I, I think the, the clear uh, 
sense of direction is that it needs a clearer sense of direction. Uh, the infrastructure management has not been a strong suit of this papacy, somewhat to the surprise since Pope Benedict himself had been in the Curia since 1981. But he clearly has not been, uh, he will not go down in history as being the most effective uh, top-level manager. Father Bresky, just one more question on, on the announcement itself. Uh, the Pope wrote it in Latin. Is that still a qualification to become Pope, that you have to speak Latin fluently? No, no. And uh, and I don't think the next Pope likely will be a fluent Latin speaker. I also don't think the Pope wrote this um, thing in Latin. There's a Latinist in Rome, a, a, a person who is very qualified in that. And it does show that the, the fact that it came in Latin showed that he had been thinking about it and it was prepared. The fact that it was kept secret is more surprising than anything else. Why do you find that uh, surprising? Because in Rome, there's an expression subsegreto, which means under the seal of secrecy, which usually is translated as don't give it away, sell it. Uh, there are very few secrets in Rome. This was one of them. Father James Bresky, professor of moral theology at Boston College. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So tomorrow night, President Obama delivers his State of the Union address. He'll use the occasion to push for his legislative priorities like immigration reform. The president wants, among other things, to offer millions of illegal immigrants a legal path to citizenship. But he's made clear that he expects the undocumented to go to the back of the line behind applicants who got here legally. The thing is, applying for citizenship often leads to indefinite waiting times. John Rossman of the public radio collaboration Fronteras has this report. Meet Gustavo Valencia. He's waiting in the line that lawmakers are now talking about. We initiated the documentation in 87. My father became a U.S. citizen in 94. For it's been almost 18 years. Valencia left Mexico in his 20s. He came on a tourist visa and stayed. When his father got U.S. citizenship in 1994, Valencia applied for a family visa. That's where his line started. But where it ends is unclear. In nine years, his line has moved back 13 months, and he's unsure why. All they give you is a notification and there is nothing that you can do. But you would like to know a little bit more. You know, how come I'm not, things are not moving properly? As Washington tackles immigration reform, the Senate's bipartisan proposal would send undocumented immigrants to the back of the line. And President Obama agrees. But he had also increased the total number of family visas, like Valencia's, that are given out. That way, immigrants who start lining up behind Valencia face a shorter line. Marco Rubio, the Florida senator giving the Republican response to the State of the Union in both Spanish and English, even he finds the current backlog flawed. But as he told the New York Times in January, quote, I don't have a solution for that question right now. It's because the lines to enter the U.S. legally are really complicated. Think of them like the ones you see at an airport abroad. They're full of people waiting to fly to the United States. There are different airlines or ways to get a green card. But by far, the most popular way into the U.S. is the family visa. There are two paths to that gate. One, the fastest, is for the spouse, young child, or parent of a U.S. citizen. But the second line under debate is far longer. It's like the security line. The second line, the second rate line, is when you're not an immediate relative, but you are a family member. Lilia Velasquez is an immigration lawyer in San Diego. This slower line is made up of spouses and younger children of current green card holders, along with siblings or older children of U.S. citizens. These family preference lines are divided once more, depending on your home country. 
For places with high visa demand like Mexico, India, China, the Philippines, imagine the airport during Christmas. The line snakes out the door. It's that line times 1,000. Velasquez explains the wait time for Valencia's specific line. A U.S. citizen parent that wishes to bring over a son or daughter over 21 who's single, the wait for Mexico is over 100 years. Not for everyone, of course, but she's also not exaggerating. The bottleneck happens because of a yearly cap on family visas. Every country is only allowed 7% of that total number, and that hasn't changed since 1965. But the demand has, so Mexico's line is a lot longer than France's. You can see your place in line through the government's visa bulletin. But don't take that estimated wait time at face value. Let's see how fast the dates, the priority dates, are moving. And then we can judge, more or less, when we can be expected that you will become eligible. Priority date is like a timestamp on your ticket, marking when your application went in. So let's go back to Valencia. He's from Mexico. When he applied, he was over 21. That places him in Mexico's F1 preference. For certain lines, like Valencia's, the priority dates on the visa bulletin are unreliable. And with the current backlog, these lines with too many applicants move so slow, some months, it actually moves back in time. That's called visa retrogression. Valencia compares this feeling of retrogression to the stock market crashing. When things were going well, you were watching the stock every day. And when it crashed, all of a sudden, you don't even want to see your 401k. Valencia's priority dates have changed twice. It means more bureaucracy, more waiting. For sitting aside his father's home in San Diego, Valencia remains optimistic. He's working, has a U.S. college degree, but not having a green card has shelved his other dreams, like getting married. He's met women, but many have been undocumented, and he couldn't consider it. If I were to marry someone that doesn't have any documentation, I'm going to be into a different bracket. And all these 18 years that I've been waiting for that green card would be meaningless. For Valencia, the wait for legal residence is worth it. It's more than a green card. It's about earning a political voice. Having most of your life now here, you kind of would like to be incorporated into the process of being part of the society, being able to go and vote. Uh, and the people that work for you like politicians, letting them know how you feel. What happens in Congress this year may determine how much longer Valencia and the millions who may line up behind him will have to wait. For The World, I'm John Rossman in San Diego. Still ahead, some paddles, balls, and presto diplomacy on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's a growing scandal gripping Europe, and it has nothing to do with corruption, economic crisis, or the euro. It's about horse meat. It began with burgers in Ireland and frozen lasagna in Britain, which were found to contain horse meat labeled as beef. Similar discoveries in France and other countries followed. Now, British and French governments are promising to punish those involved, and suppliers in Romania, Poland, and Sweden are under pressure to explain what's going on. A lot of Europeans are outraged 
outraged that they were tricked into eating horse meat, which they thought was beef. But there's another side to this scandal. It's also boosted demand for horse products. So says Paul Webb, who runs a website in the UK that is devoted to exotic meats. And Paul, first of all, what's been the net result for horse meat uh, that you've witnessed in the in the wake of this mislabeling scandal? From our point of view, it's been excellent. I mean, our sales have increased over a thousand percent over in the past month, simply because people are interested in trying the meats that we sell. And I believe because the media attention regarding horse meat, don't you find that a bit surprising? Because, I mean, the way the scandal's been played out is like, how did this horse meat make its way into our, our precious beef? I mean, how do you explain this? Uh, well, I think there's two sides to the story. First of all, there's the situation where people are starting to lose confidence in the people who are supplying these meats. Uh, the majority of people in the UK shop at supermarkets on a regular basis. And um, with these scandals arising, they're looking elsewhere to purchase their meat. And while they're doing that, instead of being told what to buy by the supermarkets, they're making their own choices. And hence, they're developing taste for new meats and seeing new stuff on the market. Is there a possibility that horse meat is the future? Uh, I wouldn't call it a future. I think there's a few people out there who are daring to eat it nowadays. And I believe that over the past month or so, there's been a lot of interest in horse meat. And people want to try it. And they know that the stuff they're getting is actually what they're getting and not something completely different. Your website, Exotic Meats, is uh, is a champion of exotic meats, obviously. So make the case for horse meat for our listeners. What's so great about it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a low in fat meat, very low in fat. It's very similar in taste to beef. It's sort of between beef and um, venison. Uh, it's a fairly sweet meat. It's, it's been eaten, you know, I would say donkey's years, but that's a bit of a pun thrown in there. <laughs> yeah. The Italians eat a lot of it. 50% of all meat in the uh, European community is eaten by Italians. And the Southern Europe as well in France. It's got double the iron of what beef's got. It's just very good for you. It's a healthy meat as well. Is horse meat cheaper than beef? It is at the moment, yes, especially uh, within the European community. There is an, an excess of horse meat, which brings the price down. Also, horses are able to graze on land, which other animals just wouldn't entertain. Are there any risks that you can see in eating horse meat? our point of view, I, I can see no risk whatsoever with eating horse meat. Everything that we sell comes to the European Commission. It's, it's all checked. It's all stamped. All the horses have passports. They have all registrations and they have a complete history of any medications they've taken and all that sort of thing. It's all controlled by the European Commission. What countries around the world are big consumers of horse meat currently? Uh, Argentina's big. Uh, Mexico. Um, obviously, Italy, uh, Switzerland, and there's a little bit of eaten in um, Germany, uh, Spain, and also southern France areas as well. Uh, Iceland eat a lot, and Japan eat it raw, apparently. Mm. Japanese eat it raw. Lovely. Mm. <laughs> Paul Webb, who runs the website Exotic Meats, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Marco. Though it's not supposed to be in certain food products in the U.K., horse meat is legally sold around the world. And this next story is related to the global trade of, well, everything. It's about the Panama Canal, which enables cargo vessels to take a shortcut between the Atlantic and the Pacific. The canal is now being widened to accommodate larger ships carrying bigger loads. But it's not just merchants who stand to benefit from this construction project. Scientists are already reaping rewards. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program Nova explains. When the Panama Canal was first built over 100 years ago, it unearthed scientific treasure, countless fossils and geological clues to Panama's past. But once the construction stopped, the jungle rushed back in, blanketing the land and concealing the geology. And you couldn't read the history anymore. You didn't know where to look for fossils. Eldridge Birmingham directs the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama City. 
As a result, our understanding of the history of Panama was sort of frozen in time in 1914. Now, though, the canal is being widened. And once again, what lies beneath this slab of earth is being revealed. Next to the canal, on a slope that's been graded by heavy machinery, a field assistant with the Florida Museum of Natural History chisels away at the soft rock. His name is Tony Singerhouse, and he's just found a small fossil. It's a jaw of a protocerratid. A protocerratid. That's an extinct relative of cattle and goats. The fossilized jaw is embedded in four chunks of rock. So we will take it back to the lab and we will glue it together. This fossil comes from 20 million years ago. At that time, North and South America weren't connected as they are today. They were separated by about 150 miles of salt water. Panama was the southernmost extent, the edge of North America. And that makes it an interesting place for scientists to learn about the animals that were living here before that land bridge was formed, before crossing over into South America became possible. Many of the fossils turning up in Panama come from species that were known to live much farther north, as far north as the Dakotas. A discovery of a specimen here can mean a doubling of an animal's known range. Aaron Wood is a paleontologist at the University of Florida. That's why this particular locality is important. We're seeing a record of animals that were able to uh, adapt to a diverse range of habitats. Recent digs have revealed a rich array of animals that lived here 20 million years ago. Things like miniature horses and tiny camels, just a couple feet tall. There was a fearsome predator the size of a black bear called a bear dog. Over the last several years, scientists have taken the number of species they used to think lived here and multiplied it by a factor of 10. Federico Moreno is a geologist from Colombia. I think we owe the knowledge of the biodiversity of Panama to the Panama Canal expansion. You have specialists from all over the world coming here to the canal every day of the year. Scientists are now filling in a detailed portrait of the animals and plants that were here at the moment when North and South America finally made contact. But Eldridge Birmingham of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute says this burst of discovery won't continue much longer. Because what's going to happen is the expansion is going to finish. There's not going to be new digs. Those landscapes will overgrow just as they did 100 years ago. And as a result, we'll pretty quickly see a dramatic reduction in new discoveries. The canal expansion project's on schedule to finish by August of next year. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Panama City, Panama. Here's another way to gain a new view of our planet. Watch the two-hour Nova special, Earth from Space. It airs Wednesday evening on PBS. Still to come on The World, preserving one of Ethiopia's most treasured cultural artifacts, jazz funk from the 1960s. News is first here on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how producer Francis Falsetto's decades-long effort to preserve Ethiopian music got started. I did not decide one day to do it. A friend of me played a vinyl. This was exactly April 84. I don't remember the precise day. And I was amazed. I never heard about such music. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Racism and violence are sadly not uncommon in international soccer, but even so, this story about one of Israel's leading professional soccer clubs stands out. Some fans of the Beitar Jerusalem team are angry that their club assigned two Chechen Muslim players. That may have been the motivation for a suspected arson attack on the club's headquarters last week. Beitar was until recently the last major Israeli soccer team with an all-Jewish roster. Yesterday, Beitar and his new Chechen players suited up for a game against a team from an Arab city in northern Israel. The world's Matthew Bell was there. In a league that's long been concerned about racist incitement from fans, hardcore Beitar supporters have stood out for their bad behavior. There's no alcohol on sale in the Jerusalem stadium, but no matter where you sit, you'd be likely to hear chants like, Death to the Arabs. Several recent incidents, though, especially torching the team's office, seem to have sparked a backlash against incitement and bigotry. Israeli officials from the Jerusalem mayor to the prime minister have denounced the behavior of Beitar fans. And last night, authorities wanted to send a message. They put 700 police and security officers on duty for the game. Outside the stadium, anyone displaying symbols of a radical fan group called La Familia was not allowed in. Some fans were clearly annoyed. 16-year-old Linoy told me she's been a Beitar fan her whole life. This is a Jewish land, she said, and Beitar should be a Jewish team without any Arab or Muslim players. She said the owner is trying to destroy the team by bringing in two Muslims from Chechnya against the wishes of supporters. The hometown crowd of mostly young men sang along with the national anthem, but only half the stadium was full. The section that's usually packed with the most enthusiastic Beitar supporters was completely empty by order of the Israel Football Association. In their place, a huge banner in team colors, yellow and black, read, Violence and racism? Not on our field. The announcer told fans to refrain from racist chants or they'd be kicked out, and it seemed to work. Although there were plenty of profanity-laced chants aimed at the Beitar management and the opposing team, B'nai Sakhnin. The atmosphere in the stadium changed when the visiting team scored first and then scored again. Arab fans bust in from Sakhnin sat in a separate section. They were surrounded by police and security, and as their team took control of the game, they chanted, God is great. A police officer standing nearby said things might get ugly if the game remained so lopsided, but the home team came alive in the second half. Beitar answered with a goal of its own, and then... Police officers might have breathed a sigh of relief as Beitar tied the game. With 10 minutes to play, the home team then sent in one of its new Muslim players. It was 19-year-old Gabriel Kadiev's debut with his new team. 
Some fans stood and clapped for the defender, but others whistled and jeered every time Kadiev touched the ball. The match ended in a 2-2 draw. A few dozen people from either side were ejected from the stadium by police, but there wasn't any real trouble. I asked one fan, 25-year-old Almog, what he thought of Beitar's two new Muslim players. They don't hate me, so I shouldn't, should not hate them. I believe they are good players for us. He said it's a minority of radical Beitar fans behind most of the violence and racism, and he hopes the authorities win the fight against these extremists. I really hope, because it's, it's a fight, not, it's not just about football, it's about the, the whole country. About the society, not about football. Something bigger. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. A city in Japan figures in our geo-quiz today. So does ping pong. First, the Japanese city. It's got three million people and looks out on the Pacific Ocean. It's located on Honshu Island, and it's a major industrial port that competes with Tokyo, Osaka, and Kobe. This capital of Aichi Prefecture was once a center of Japan's aircraft industry. U.S. bombers attacked it during World War II, devastating much of the city. Today, the city is home to Japan's automotive industry. Toyota's Lexus brand and Mitsubishi are headquartered there. And this Japanese city also played a key role in shaping U.S.-China relations. Something happened in the city in 1971, which was the catalyst for ping-pong diplomacy. Remember that? We'll tackle the politics of table tennis and get to the answer in just a few minutes. Latin America, the small nation of Ecuador, stands out as one of the region's most advanced for disabled people. A major reason for that is Lenin Moreno, Ecuador's vice president. Moreno is a paraplegic and one of the world's highest-ranking leaders using a wheelchair. John Otis has more from the capital, Quito. Lenin Moreno was once a wealthy businessman and politician, but in 1998, he was shot in the back as a gunman stole his car from a parking lot in Quito. He was paralyzed from the waist down. Moreno overcame intense pain and bouts of depression to become a motivational speaker. He's written books about the healing power of laughter. He also performs inspirational songs. Todo pasa y todo In 2006, Moreno was elected vice president. At the time, it was rare to see people in wheelchairs in public. In rural areas, people with severe handicaps were treated as outcasts and sometimes confined to sheds and chicken coops. But Moreno has tried to change all that. Wheelchair ramps are springing up across Ecuador. People with severe disabilities now receive $240 monthly stipends from the government. And Moreno has helped draw up a law that compels Ecuadorian companies to set aside at least 4% of jobs for people with disabilities. In a recent speech, Moreno pledged that the government would reach out to all disabled people who need help. That, he said, amounts to a revolution. 
That revolution includes providing free artificial limbs to poor Ecuadorians. Some are being built in the wing of this state-run hospital in Quito. Government officials say the program is the only one of its kind in Latin America. Jorge Costa, who manages the project, says thousands of Ecuadorians hobble around on crutches because they're too poor to buy artificial limbs. Now, he says, they can become productive members of society. One person who's made this transition is Sarita Carlosama. I meet her at a sports club where she's playing an early morning game of wheelchair tennis before going to work. A disease affecting her spinal cord left Carlosama paraplegic 20 years ago. Back then, she was studying to be a doctor, but she had to quit because there was no wheelchair access to the fifth floor classroom. Finding a job was tough, but under the new law to bring disabled people into the workforce, Carlos Sama was recently hired by an oil company. Not surprisingly, she's full of praise for Vice President Moreno. He has achieved so much, but even if he hadn't done anything, just the fact that the vice president is in a wheelchair changes perceptions about disabled people. At the presidential palace where Moreno has his office, disabled people line up every morning seeking assistance. Upstairs, Moreno's top aide, Alex Camacho, tells me other Latin American governments have called on Ecuador for advice on policies for disabled people. Now we are uh, advising to Peru, to Bogota, to Uruguay, to Dominican Republic, uh, to Guatemala, also to Haiti. The presidential band plays as foreign diplomats present their credentials to Moreno. He's now Ecuador's acting president because President Rafael Correa has taken a leave of absence to campaign for re-election later this month. But Moreno is not on the ballot. He says he needs a break from the exhausting schedule. Still, many of the programs Moreno put in place are likely to continue, says Monica Almeida, an editor at El Universo newspaper. By far one of the best things this government has done. I think that whatever government that will come will really have to follow that path that Moreno has initiated. It seems likely that Ecuadorians will see more of Moreno. He was nominated last year for the Nobel Peace Prize, and there's speculation he'll run for president in 2017. For The World, I'm John Otis, Quito, Ecuador. As John mentioned, Lenin Moreno's resume includes inspirational singing, and as you heard a few minutes ago, he's pretty good, too. Watch a video of Moreno performing at theworld.org. We're going to take a few minutes now to remember Chinese ping-pong player Zhuang Zidong. He died yesterday at the age of 73. Zhuang was the Chinese player who started the famous ping-pong diplomacy episode in the 1970s. You remember ping-pong diplomacy. It's what led to Richard Nixon's famous opening to China and his historic trip there. U.S. table tennis historian Tim Boggan remembers the era well. In 1971, Boggan traveled with the American team to the World Table Tennis Championships in Nagoya, Japan. Zhuang Zidong was there with the Chinese team. Boggan says ping-pong diplomacy started after a top American player missed the team bus one day. Well, it all started when Glenn Cowan, our sort of hippie opportunist, was practicing with the English player Trevor Taylor. And Glenn 
when he came out, there was no bus in sight for him. Strangely enough, a Chinese waved to Glenn to come board the Chinese bus. Now, what's interesting is who had the authority to do this? It wasn't Chuang Zedong himself, but somebody. And I mean, the repercussions that were going to follow were just incredible. There would be reporters waiting for that bus to get back, and when the American is seen with them, I mean, my God, that is going to be tremendous news. This was in Nagoya, in Japan. This was in Nagoya. And while they're on the bus, Zhuang Zedong gave Glenn a gift. He took the authority to do this. Some said he shouldn't have interceded. But anyway, this started it. So now, the next day, Glenn gives Zhuang a gift. And, of course, the news people are all over this. When Mao, the story goes, when Mao sees this photo, he decides to allow the U.S. into China. Heretofore, he was not going to. This is Zhuang Zedong's story. My understanding, maybe this is all wrong, that when the American players went to China in 71, they kind of got their clocks cleaned by the Chinese ping-pong players. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were late... 20s in the ranking, late 20s in the men's. So, I mean, when we went to China and played them friendship matches, I mean, they could have cleaned our clock, as you put it. But instead, they made it somewhat close. I think seven, four matches, seven for Chinese, (laughs) four matches for the U.S. But it was all very symbolic, you know, a historic occasion where everybody is on his or her good behavior. There's just no doubt about it. Right. So how then does historic groundbreaking diplomacy emerge from a moment that could have been humiliating? Oh, well, it was before that. It was when we went to China, everybody knew that we're not going to play ping pong. We're going, you know, it's a symbolic gesture of friendship which, of course, is going to be built upon in the next 40 years. Particularly, the Chinese want to keep up this ping-pong diplomacy. So we've been to China a couple of times. They've been to the U.S. rather recently in San Francisco and at the Nixon Library. It's just perpetuated for all these years. And the strange thing about it is, Glenn and Zhuang were never really in any way buddy-buddy. I mean, they hardly saw one another. But they serve as this symbolic twosome, and it's being built on year after year, decade after decade. Tim, what is your favorite memory of Zhuang? My favorite memory of him is in 1993, years later, when he came as a guest to the U.S. Open, and I interviewed him. One question we asked was, could a player, did he have to start in a really kind of correct way to be a great player? And uh, Zhuang is armed with all kinds of little sayings and so forth, so he gave an analogy. A tree grows wild, and it can grow and grow and, you know, grow pretty well, but it's not like the tree that grows in the garden that's cared for from the beginning by a caretaker gardener. Interesting. And you know, the one who starts with the right strokes is the one who grows into the great player. Table tennis player and historian Tim Boggan helping us to remember the hero of ping-pong diplomacy, Zhuang Zidong. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. And you heard Tim say it earlier, Nagoya, Japan is where ping-pong diplomacy was born, which makes Nagoya the answer to our geo-quiz today. This is PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. One of the most vivid and uplifting stories emerging from the conflict in Mali has been the one about the ancient manuscripts of Timbuktu and how the people of that historic city saved many of them from destruction at the hands of Islamist militants. It was a reminder of just how vulnerable many of Africa's cultural treasures are. Today we want to share another story of cultural preservation in Africa. This one involves Ethiopian music and a Frenchman named Francis Falsetto. He's a curator of a 28-CD collection titled Etiopique. It features, among many others, the great Mulatu Astatke. Thanks in part to Francis Falsetto and his Ethiopic series, that track was featured in the 2005 movie Broken Flowers with Bill Murray. The series has sparked global interest in Ethiopia's music. Francis Falsetto was in town recently to deliver a talk at Harvard University. He also stopped by our studio to tell us how he embarked on the project. I did not decide one day to do it. A friend of me played a vinyl. This was exactly April 84. I do remember the precise day. And I was amazed. I never heard about this music, such a music, you know. Who was the musician that you heard? Mahmoud Ahmed, Eremela mm. Mela. I mean, supposedly I was kind of knowledgeable about African music in general. But uh, I was amazed by this. It didn't sound like anything else. So I made some quick survey uh, asking to some friend of mine, music journalist, and everybody was telling me, what's that? Where did you get it from? Do you have more stuff like this? So at that time, I was working for a non-profit organization making concerts. Then we decided to invite this Mahmoud Ahmed. Never I thought I could be discussed about that with you 30 years later. And when you first went to Addis Ababa and started digging through the archives where these master tapes and vinyls were, were found, what kind of condition were they in? I mean... That this was the first time for me to go to Africa. But on top of that, it was a dictatorship then. Uh, between 1974, the fall of Haile uh, Selassie, and 91, you have no idea how tough it was. The regime of Mengistu Haile Mariam, I mean, it, it, they did a lot of disservice to the music of Ethiopia simply by imposing a curfew. Was that part of the motivation for you, that the music was kind of being ignored and you felt... Somebody had to step in and do something. I didn't know that. I came to understand that when uh, I went there for the first time. I myself, uh, I was willing to spend the night and see the night music scene. But I understood the curfew had never stopped since '74. I mean, 10, 11 years after, still it was there and, and it totally killed the, the nightlife. Once you started digging into the archives and discovering this music, listening to it, I mean, you went to some vaults, presumably, where the master tapes were in terrible condition, right? I mean... Or was, were they in good condition? Very, very quickly, I understood that one of the main labels was Amaha Records. Amaha Echete was the owner of this record, and I came to understand that he was in exile in uh, the United States. So very quickly, I came to Washington, D.C. to visit him and tell him about my project and how can we 
have a license and, and to, to re-release this stuff. On, on, so he on was in exile from the Mengistu regime yes, in Washington. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, your, your, your focus suddenly turned from Addis to Washington. Yes, I, I can because you know I proceeded according to the international copyright law. You know you have to deal with the owner of the masters. And was this man in a position to give you permission? Then he was, but yeah. uh, as he was in exile, he had no paper with him, no book note, no address book. It was difficult from exile. We knew it was in Athens, Greece. The, the masters. The masters. Yes. What because, were they doing there? Because uh, there are never pressing plants in Ethiopia. They were. Initially, uh, Amaha Ishete and uh, his label, Amaha Record, were depending on Indian pressing, then Lebanese pressing, and finally uh, Greek pressing, you know. It's a real scavenger hunt that you went on to get this ah, music. It's, it's, it's just like a detective uh, story, you know. <laughs> it took about 10 years to locate, uh, for sure, the master. So what do Ethiopians think about this uh, series, the Ethiopic series? I have a lot of supporters, of course. Uh, but there are a lot of people having a suspicious vision of my work. What I mean, is their suspicion? I'm a foreigner. I may make a lot of money out of that, you know. Do especially you? At, no, unfortunately, no. Uh, you are a foreigner, but you don't make a lot of money. From <laughs> no, this. no, no, no. I mean, I, I would be very pleased that anybody else, Ethiopians, Abyssinians, make it. But uh, as I see that nobody try to even start to do it. That's the way I, I did it. Still, there is this divide, I think, of visual art, sculpture, why it all ends up in galleries in Europe. Have you ever felt the the pressure of being a foreigner and kind of in this post-colonial state taking the music away? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I, 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 constantly. How have you been able to rationalize it? It depends on your behavior, the way you proceed. My personal background is a very libertarian one. So it, it was very helpful to face the suspicion of uh, many Ethiopians and, and foreigners also, you know, which I can understand, you mm. know. How come it is a French guy taking care of an Ethiopian heritage? This deserves to give some uh, explanation, you know. Your talk is called Sense and Nonsense in Musical Globalization. So let me ask you, what does make sense and what is nonsense in the globalization of music? Uh, Isn't it all, to a certain degree, out of our control? To answer your, your question first, Etiosanic is another series I have started a few years ago and dealing with Ethiopian music worldwide. And as I, I received... A lot of tapes, CDs, live recording from all over the world of uh, foreigners playing Ethiopian music. I thought first, this is helpful. It's a kind of recognition of Ethiopian music at some point. And that's why I've started this series. I'll give you uh, a double CD I've released last year. And you mm -hmm. have 28 bands from dozens of countries, from, from Japan to Australia, from America, from Brazil, from Incredible. all over Europe. But all inspired by Ethiopia. Totally. And yeah. for me, it's, it's a phenomenon worth uh, being taken care of. Francis Falsetto with Buddha Music in Paris. He is a curator and producer of the Ethiopic series. So great to meet you. Thanks for coming here. Thank you for your invitation. Here's a track from that Ethiosonic album we were just talking about. It's a song titled Emnete by the Imperial Tiger Orchestra from Switzerland. Talk about the global spread of Ethiopian music. 
By the way, one person who's been especially inspired by the music in Falsetto's Etiopic series is Russ Gershon. He's the founder of the Boston-based jazz ensemble Either Orchestra. You can hear Gershon talk about how Etiopic influenced him at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.